So, we are uh, in Mark chapter 1, and we, last week we started a series in the book of Mark called Mark Remixed, and we looked at uh, just the prologue to Mark's gospel. And if you were here, hopefully you remember, because it, it keeps cropping up, the fact that Mark is drawing, when he's writing this gospel, he's drawing on these ancient stories that were really important in Israel's history. Uh, two stories in particular, the story of the Exodus and the story of the exile. If you can keep that in your mind as we go through, a lot of um, the, the text of Mark's gospel is going to make a lot more sense. He's bringing these stories to bear on, on Jesus and showing how in Jesus there's a new exodus that's happening. The exodus story is being replayed out again, but in a different way, not, not passing through physical waters anymore, but now Jesus is coming to bring a, a new start and a new transformation. And the exile is ending, and there's a restoration that's coming, and, and, and we're finally going home. The exile's finally over. Those are the themes that are starting to come out. And we looked at how John the Baptist prepares the way for all of that and comes ahead of, of Jesus to talk about this one who's coming, who's greater than me, and I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals and all of that. And, and so finally then, we get to uh, verse 9 of Mark chapter 1, and Jesus makes really his first entrance onto the stage in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, we'll just follow this text through, see where it takes us. So verse 9, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, which is further way up, way up in the north from where John was, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So uh, Jesus comes down just like all of the other people that John was baptizing. And he comes and, and, and actually goes through the waters of baptism himself. And that might have looked something like this. Oh, that's me. <laughs> Check it out. That's actually the Jordan River. And uh, I was there a couple of years ago, and, and one of the things we did when we were there is we reenacted the baptism of Jesus. So it was pretty cool. Uh, we came through the water, and uh, it's my New Testament professor there baptizing me, uh, kind of. And so he, rather than speaking the words of, that we usually say at Christian baptisms, he, he said the words of, of, of John, you know, uh, in terms of anticipating the coming of the Messiah. It was this sort of preparatory act. So, and it was uh, really, really cold and really manky water, man, I'm telling you. It was, certainly wasn't any kind of a physical cleansing going on there, <laughs> just a purely spiritual one. So, I don't know, maybe I've got a messianic complex or something, but that's, uh, that, that's, that's, you know, it's the kind of thing. Jesus would have just been in a line of people um, going down into the water, getting baptized. Uh, but when he comes up, something quite unique happens. In verse 10, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Um, those of you that are into the doctrine of the Trinity, you see every member of the Trinity shows up here. It's one of the few times in Scripture where that happens. You have God the Son being baptized, the voice of God the Father, and God the Spirit coming and resting on, on Jesus. The whole Trinity is involved, and there's an interesting study just in that, the way the, the, the whole person of God is involved in the baptism of Jesus. And so this suddenly makes Jesus' baptism completely different from everyone else that's been going through the waters. This voice from heaven comes down and speaks to him these profound words, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And uh, I don't want to stop here too long, but just to point out that Tom Wright makes the comment in his commentary, this is actually what God says to every one of his sons and daughters at the moment of their, their conversion or baptism and for, for every day after that. 
And it's not a bad idea to hear God saying that to you. I don't know whether you've ever done that, but imagine that God saying to you, you are my son, my daughter, with whom I'm well pleased. Just to listen to those words, that really does something for your soul, I think. To hear God saying to you, you're my precious child, with you I'm well pleased. And he says it to us because he first said it to Jesus. And so we're associated with Jesus and we can hear these words to us. It's a great place to come if you're feeling a bit down. Just hear those words again washing over you. So God speaks these words to his son Jesus. And then in verse 12, at once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. Now, you notice the exodus happening again here. Jesus has gone through the waters of baptism and then is led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. Think back to the story of Israel. Israel goes through the Red Sea and are then led by God into the wilderness for 40 years. You see, it's unmistakable what Mark's doing. He's saying Jesus is replaying the Exodus story. He's going through the whole thing again symbolically to show you there's a new beginning coming. There's a new Exodus on its way. You're going to be delivered all over again, but in an even more amazing way than the first time around. So Jesus goes through the symbolic Exodus, and then he goes out into the wilderness and is tempted by Satan. And uh, Satan really crops up in Mark as the primary adversary of God, the primary uh, opposer of the things that Jesus is trying to do. And by the way, Satan's not his first name. Uh, if it's not like Steve. Um, the, it's, whenever Satan is, crops up in the Bible, it's always preceded by the, the Satan. It just it, Literally, the, the accuser. It, it's, that's, that's the idea. He is the Satanas, the, the accuser. And he is the one who stands behind every attempt to thwart and bring down and oppose the purposes of God. So when Jesus gets into all these conflicts and controversies with all kinds of people, even when the Satan is not mentioned, you know it's always traced back to him because he is the one who stands behind every darkness and dark power and force of evil and attempt to bring God down, bring Jesus down, bring down the people of God. And that's true today as well. And so it's so important to realize that we're not fighting against flesh and blood. It's not people that we're up against. It's ultimately the one who stands behind all of that, this Satan figure. So Jesus has this clash with Satan. Mark doesn't tell us too much about what goes on there. Matthew does. Uh, we know that Jesus went through a series of, of tests and Satan tempted him with various opportunities and, and alternative routes to being a Messiah. And Jesus resolutely stood his ground and, 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 and held the course. And he comes through this. He's, he was with the wild animals, we're told, and angels attended him. Then the next thing you see, and this is really where I want to land today, in verse 14, after John was put in prison, so sometime quite a while later, Jesus went into Galilee. He goes back home into the north, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This is such an important little phrase that Jesus says because really everything else he says in the entire gospel, in all of the gospels, is, a, is an elaboration of this. If you want to get to the heart of Jesus' message, it's here in verse 15 of Mark chapter 1. It's the first words he says and it's a succinct little summary of Jesus' entire teaching. So it's pretty important to grasp what, what, what's being said. You notice one phrase crops up twice. These two verses. Mark says it once and then, and then it's on the lips of Jesus himself. The phrase, good news. Or some of your translations might have gospel. He came proclaiming the good news or the gospel and then he says, repent and believe the good news, the gospel. I don't know what you think about when you think about the gospel. 
Often we think it's sort of like a three or four or five step plan of salvation, that if you're going to share the gospel with someone, what are you going to do? You're going to tell them how to get into a relationship with Jesus and how to be forgiven from their sins so they can be sure they're going to heaven when they die. That's the line that we kind of trot out, and, and that's true in, as far as it goes, but it really, it's quite a thin description of what's really going on here. I don't think Jesus had in his mind a five-step plan of salvation. I think there was something much more tied to the stories in the Old Testament that Mark is drawing on. The phrase good news or the word gospel in Greek is the word euangelion. And originally, it's a military term. You have, in ancient times, you have nation going to war against nation, tribe against tribe, civilization against civilization. They'd go out onto the battlefield and, and, and just have this massive uh, battle. And they didn't, of course, have the military technology to be able to get messages back to base or back to the homeland about what's going on in the front lines. So you'd have these guys that whenever a victory was won, whenever a battle was won, you would send a runner back to base and back, right back to your homeland if you were far from home with the news that you had won this victory. And these runners were called evangelos, or, the, or for short, evangel, which by the way is where we get the word evangelism from. And, these, and you would send these guys back so as soon as the, the victory is won, because you imagine back home they don't know how to react yet. They don't, know if it, they don't know if they should be fleeing their homes or whether they should be coming and looting the other nation's property. And so you win the battle. First thing you do is you get your runner, you get your evan evangelos, and you say, right, go back home and, and tell the good news of victory. Let them know that we've won and they can come, come and, and, and clean up and, and we're going to take this land. So let me show you one place in the Old Testament where this actually happens physically, where, where this is going on, just to paint the picture. 2 Samuel 18 you have here uh, a battle between the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel, and King David is waiting for news of the battle. And in verse 24, you don't need to turn there if you don't want, it's going to be on the screen. Verse 24, while David was sitting between the inner and outer gates, the watchman went up to the roof of the gateway by the wall. The watchmen are these guys that will just look out to see if there's any enemy coming or, or look out for the evangelists, hopefully. Uh, as he looked out, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out to the king and reported it. The king said, if he is alone, he must have good news. In other words, if there was 50,000 bad guys with him, it's probably not such good news. But he's got good news. And the runner came closer and closer. So the evangelist is coming closer and closer. Uh, and then he sees another runner in verse 26 with also good news. Uh, in verse 28, then uh, Ahamaz called out to the king, all is well. He bowed down before the king with his face to the ground and says, Praise be to the Lord our God. He has delivered up those who lifted their hands against my lord the king. Sure enough, it is good news, luckily. Um, and this is how it played itself out. So you have this little evangelist coming back, and he is bringing back this announcement of good news, which was called a euangelion. All right, so the, so the evangelist comes back with the euangelion, the announcement of victory. Now, keep that in your mind and turn over. This one I do want you to turn to if you've got a Bible. Isaiah 52. You remember last week, or perhaps you don't, where he talked about how the story of the exile is so important uh, for Jesus' listeners and hearers and, and Mark's audience. And, and in the first century in Palestine, people believed in a very real sense they were still in exile. That even though the captivity had ended physically and they were geographically back in their own land, that in, in a real sense the exile was still happening. They were still slaves, which they were to Rome 
and they were still in captivity, and they were still waiting for God to act. They were still waiting for God to come and give them the victory. They were still waiting for God to really come back to them. They'd returned to the land. They were waiting for God to return to them as king and take his rightful place and rule over the whole earth and subdue the nations and all of that sort of stuff. And here is a passage from Isaiah that talks about that hope, which would have burned so bright in the hearts and minds of people in the first century. Uh, Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring, here's that phrase again, good news. The Greek behind this uh, in the Greek version is euangelion, same word. Who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, which is Jerusalem, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. You remember the watchmen from 2 Samuel? Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Here's this beautiful picture cast in military terms of God coming back, and he's playing two roles because he's the evangelos who's coming to announce victory, but he's also the victor. He's also the one who now reigns. He has won a decisive victory over the forces of evil, over the foreign and pagan nations, and now he comes back to assert his rightful kingship over the entire cosmos. And it's, it's cast in terms of this wonderful military victory. We're looking for the arrival of Yahweh, the evangelos, bringing the euangelion, the news of victory. So with all that floating around in your mind, can you keep all that in your mind as we come back to Mark? I think it'll help you understand what's going on here. Back in Mark chapter 1, here's what's happening. Jesus goes out into the wilderness. He has a battle with Satan. And the next thing we see is him walking into town striding, well, I don't want to make this too much like a western, but he's walking back into, in, into Galilee and he says that he has a euangelion. What sort of picture do you think Mark's trying to create? This is a military metaphor. There's a battle that's been won. See, Mark doesn't tell us too much about what happened with Jesus and Satan in the wilderness, but he doesn't have to because Jesus does. The very fact that Jesus comes into town and says, I'm bringing good news, what do you think that means? I've been victorious. The clash with Satan wasn't an even footing. It wasn't this little tussle and no one's sure who won. No, no, there was a decisive victory. Jesus won and now comes back as the evangel and as the victor. And he comes bringing this euangelion of victory and it takes this form. He says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. I don't know what you think of when you hear the words, the kingdom of God. Sometimes people think of a, of a purely future state, that one day there'll be this kingdom set up, but that's just something that's going to happen at the end of history. Some people think of the kingdom of God as something we carry around with us in our hearts, that it's this hidden thing that, you know, it's sort of a relationship, my personal relationship with Jesus. Uh, some people think of it like a parallel universe. It's the spiritual reality, but it exists completely separately to everything that we do day to day. But place this back in the context of Jesus' announcement of victory. Think back to Isaiah 52 again and line those verses up together. Some of the parallels here are, are unbelievable. Isaiah is picturing Yahweh, is picturing God coming back with this euangelion of victory and saying, your God reigns. Jesus is coming back with an announcement of victory saying, the kingdom of God is here. And the word for kingdom and Isaiah's word for reign are exactly the same. Basileia. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that's the word that's used, basileia. 
You could just as easily translate kingdom in Mark 1.15 as reign. So Jesus is announcing the reign of God is here. And in the context of this victory announcement, in the context of this battle that's been won, what Jesus is saying is God is finally becoming king. Israel's God is finally on the throne. He has returned to his people. He's not neglected his promises. He hasn't given up on us, but he's come back. And he has come back to take the throne, to vanquish evil, to vindicate his people, and to begin ruling over all nations, over all powers, over everything that exists with his people reigning with him. Jesus is declaring that the prophecies of Isaiah 52 are coming true right before the very eyes of his listeners. And that means the exile is ending. Yahweh is returning. Freedom is coming. We're finally going home. And Israel's God is finally becoming king. That's the essence of the kingdom of God. That's how Jesus' listeners would have heard it. And as Mark's gospel goes on, you see this kingdom that Jesus is announcing starting to take shape. You see the reign of God starting to take shape, but in a completely different way to which people expected it to come. So there is this great returning of God to Zion, to Jerusalem. God indeed does return to the holy city, but not with a great royal procession. Instead, riding on the back of a donkey into the holy city. It's the return of the king. And there is this great royal coronation ceremony, but it's not one with, with pomp and dignity. It's a long, agonizing walk up the hill to Calvary. And he's given this, this, this royal crown, but it's a crown made of thorns, and it's pressed into, into human flesh. And there's even a royal inscription for the new king, but it's a mocking sign that says, King of the Jews is placed above his head. And God does finally take the throne in the Gospel of Mark, right at the end, to preempt the ending. But his throne's not far off in a royal palace somewhere. His throne is a Roman cross from which he begins his reign. The kingdom of God begun with that clash with Satan in the wilderness. It continues and finally culminates on the cross. And in that most, that instrument of shame and torture and, and, and humiliation, God begins to reign. The kingdom arrives and God finally begins to assert his rightful kingship. That's the kingdom of God. And now as the story moves forward, we have a role in helping this kingdom to take shape. We have a role in implementing this victory that Jesus won on the cross because it didn't end there. God then raised Jesus from the dead. And in doing so, he declared him to be who he said he was, Lord, and Israel's true Messiah. And God, this is what we looked at Hebrews last year, God then gave him all authority over all things in heaven and on earth and under the earth and, and made all things in submission to Jesus, securing the fact that one day the kingdom would finally come in its fullness. Even though we don't see it fully yet, the future is absolutely secure, that new heaven and that new earth that Jesus won for us on the cross. That's the victory of God. That's the euangelion. That's the kingdom of God taking shape in the midst of a fallen and broken world. And then Jesus doesn't just explain this. He doesn't just announce it. He invites us to participate in it. Have a look at verse 15 again. He says, The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the euangelion, the news of victory. Now, if you saw someone 
standing on Queen Street with a sandwich board around them saying, repent and believe the gospel. What would you think? Fruitcake? Nutter? Yes? Something like that. You'd probably expect it to be accompanied by the end is nigh or you know, something like that. That's kind of the baggage that those words have picked up. You know, repent and believe. And for many of us, probably you hear those words and you think at least of some kind of moral um, turning, you know, repent and believe, behave yourselves, start getting your act together. But again, we have to place those words back in the context of what Jesus is saying. Repent simply means switch allegiances. Believe simply means, in this context, become loyal to or, or start following someone. And Jesus comes as a victor, and he comes as the one who's won this decisive victory over the forces of darkness, over the power of Satan, and he comes now to say, I want you to participate in this victory. Switch allegiances. Get off, get off the losing team. You've now got an opportunity to back the winning team. Give up other programs and agendas and other ways of trying to secure this victory for yourself and come and follow me because I'm the victor. I'm the one who has won this incredible victory and now you can trust me for a better way forward, for, for a better and brighter future. Leave this other stuff behind and come participate in this victory that I have won. Jesus, through these words, is inviting us to come and help implement the victory of God in the world. That's, the, that's where we get written into the story. That's where we stop being just passive observers and spectators of all this. This is the role at its heart of the church in the world, is to implement the victory of God, to implement the kingdom of God, the victory that Jesus has won. Because to be honest, you can look around, can't you, and be fairly discouraged and depressed about the state that we find the world in. And Christians always get gloomy and, and mopey, you know, the huge influence of secularism and, and there's massive immorality and people aren't following biblical principles and there's legislation that seems so anti-family and, and, and society seems to be going downhill. You know, that's all, those are all legitimate fears, you know. And in, in a week where the headlines have been dominated by uh, what, an alleged fight club in a school where people are beating each other up and then filming it and putting it on YouTube... You can be forgiven for asking, where's the kingdom of God in all this? If Jesus is on the throne, God's on the throne, where is the kingdom of God in the midst of this? And so we get depressed and defeated and give up and we figure, well, we've lost the culture war, we've lost the battle, it's all over, it's hopeless, we might as well just bury our heads in the sand and wait for Jesus to return. And this is seriously the attitude of a lot of people today. That's just this defeatist, despondent kind of attitude. It's the attitude of someone who's just been defeated in battle, not someone who's just won. And friends, I wonder if we've forgotten Jesus' words in Mark 1, 14 and 15. Have we forgotten that Jesus came and the very first words he spoke were good news of victory? The very first words out of his mouth in the Gospel of Mark, I've won this victory. There is a UN galleon. That's precisely the opposite way to the way in which we so often act as defeated and despondent. Jesus came to announce the fact that on the cross he defeated Satan. Do you really believe that? That Satan is right now defeated. Defeated. The powers of evil, Paul says it in Colossians. On the cross, Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them on the cross. That's what has happened here. The entire Satan and all his cohort 
have been decisively defeated and conquered on the cross. And Jesus has become the rightful king over all and has secured a glorious new future, a new heaven and a new earth. And even though we only see perhaps glimpses of it now, we only have that rule in principle now. That victory is still being outworked in the world, but we know with absolute certainty and absolute security that it is coming, and it is certain, and there is now in place an irreversible chain of events that will one day lead towards God being all in all when things fully and finally and completely are brought under submission to Him. That is the hope that we have as Christians. The victory has been won. See, often we go around acting like the victory is still undecided that we're in this tussle, we're in this spiritual battle, we're battling against this and that, and it could go that way, it could go my way, I'm not really sure. We've forgotten the fact that the victory has already been won, and we are not engaged in fighting a battle as much as we are in implementing a victory. The victory's already been won, and our role now is to simply stamp out the last remaining pockets of resistance as the light of the kingdom of God comes to bear in a dark world. Now, true, you can look around and see very few signs sometimes of the breaking in of God's reign. But what we know is that God is moving history unmistakably and unchangeably toward its final destination when the kingdom of God will be here in its fullness. And our role now is to simply implement that victory in the world, to take the good news, to take the good news of victory, into the spheres of influence that we have and participate with Jesus in working out the kingdom of God on the earth. This is where that work of evangelism comes in, that we now take the role of the evangel. We take the role of those guys who ran from the, from the, from the conquered victory and, and announced the good news and said, hey, we've won. This is fantastic. See, so often we turn the gospel into bad news. You know, it's like, well, you're going to go to hell if you don't believe in Jesus, aren't you? You know, we, we just want to talk about condemnation and we want to talk about do this, do better, try harder, pray more, give more, do all this, as if people can never, ever, ever measure up. We must not lose sight of the fact that the good news we have is actually good news. What we're offering to people is good news of victory. And we're giving them the same message Jesus gave them. Repent and believe the good news. Switch allegiances. Get off the losing team and come join the winning team. Switch stories, switch sides, and be part of the victory that God is working out. That's what evangelism is. should give us a bit of confidence in evangelism, shouldn't it? Knowing that the victory has been won, we're working it out, Satan's defeated. It should give us confidence in dealing with stuff in our own lives. It should give you confidence as you deal with those, you know, sin still entangles us. And I know all of this can sound a little bit naive to some of you who are sitting here this morning saying, well, quite honestly, I don't see a lot of victory in my life. And I'm, you know, this all sounds quite glib because where's the victory? All I see is defeat. All I see is me wrestling against this rubbish in my life that I never seem to be able to escape from. We need to begin by just reminding ourselves that victory has been won. Paul's pretty clear in Romans 6 that our sinful nature has been put to death on the cross. And the only reason that we continue to sin and, and to rebel against God is because we choose to give power back to a defeated enemy. We choose to hand power back. We choose to go and put on the ball and chain again and go back into prison. 
That's why Paul throws his hands up and says, what are you doing? How can this be? Why would a freed prisoner go back into a prison cell? That's what you're doing uh, when we move away from God. Because he's purchased freedom for us. And there's confidence to be gained from saying before God, I, I trust you for the victory in this area. I know you've won victory. I know Satan's defeated. He doesn't have any power over me. Sin is not my master. I'm not its slave. No matter how I feel, no matter how tough things get, no matter how much this addiction is breaking me down, no matter how much that, that hidden anxiety or insecurity is just debilitating me, or those dark feelings of depression are just smothering me, no matter how dark it gets, no matter how despairing I become, we can remember that God has given us the victory in Jesus Christ. If only we see the occasional ray of light, we can have the hope that one day that victory is going to be certain. God's going to usher in a world where there's no more weeping, mourning, crying, darkness, or pain. The old order is going to pass away. The new is going to be here. That should cause us, shouldn't it, to lift our heads just a little bit higher and say, I can, I can go another round. I can get back into this because I know I'm not fighting a foe who has, who's on equal footing. I'm, this is a defeated foe. I'm simply implementing a victory that's already won. Should give us, I think, a bit of impetus as we look for places where darkness and, and where Satan still has a hold, places where people lack dignity, places where people are struggling, where there's oppression, where people are marginalized and, and neglected and downtrodden. These places where the enemy's got some final little foothold, where he's fighting a bit of guerrilla warfare, and it should strengthen our resolve to go after those things, not in a militant way, but in a way of restoring love and restoring dignity and bringing the light of the kingdom to bear in places where people are still living in darkness, making people whole, making people healthy, physically, emotionally, spiritually, financially, socially, whatever it takes. That's the, that's the victory we're implementing. And I tell you, above all, shouldn't it make us absolutely secure in the fact that we stand in grace and forgiveness? Isn't that the greatest thing that God's won for us on the cross, this free access to Him, the fact that He never gives up on us, the fact that we are totally and completely forgiven because of the grace of God poured out in Christ Jesus? Remind yourself of that next time you're questioning God's love. The victory's been won. Look to the cross. That's where it happened. That was a victory. That's a throne from which God reigns. And that victory means there's nothing you can do that'll make God love you any more or less. You're totally secure. You're totally free. You're totally forgiven. And now we can live like it. So I think this should all make us just lift our heads just a little bit higher as we walk out this morning than when we came in today. Put our chin up just a little bit. Put a bit of steel in our spine and say, we're not defeated. We're not despondent. We're actually on the winning side. Moreover, the victory is already won. It should give us confidence as we outwork that victory in the world, knowing that the kingdom is here. The UN Galleon has come. We are those who receive and who now contain within ourselves good news that truly is good. It's good. And the world needs to hear it and to receive it from us. And, and even though things sometimes might look contrary to our expectations, we can say with the Apostle Paul, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ.